While Sunset Strip glam rockers like Rat and Motley Crue had charged out of the gate with hard-rocking records, wrote Brian Reisman for The Observer, they soon softened their looks and hooks to seduce growing legions of female fans. Other than Def Leppard with the guitar-heavy Pyromania, no one had achieved monster success with the formula until Bon Jovi came along. Bon Jovi found the perfect way to circumvent those two camps. Adored by legions of teen girls for their good looks and infectious hooks, the Jersey Syndicate, as they later came to be known, knew how to sell the fantasy of the rock and roll lifestyle and tell stories of both romantic love and sexual hijinks. Bon Jovi did okay with their first two albums, but they were far from content with life in rock and roll's second string. So for their third LP, they doubled down and swung for the fences. The result, wrote Jeff Giles for Ultimate Classic Rock, Slippery When Wet, released on August 18, 1986, 35 years ago, elevated the band to superstar status. Bon Jovi's 1984 self-titled debut and its follow-up, 1985's 7800 Fahrenheit, had both lingered near the lower reaches of the top 40, a respectable showing for a young act, but hardly the stuff careers are made of. Feeling like they needed to make their definitive statement, John and Richie talked about the high stakes of the next album in a British documentary. We knew that the all-important third album was a situation where you were going to achieve greater success like your peers were having, or you'd be relegated to the theater circuit. We needed to pull this next album through to make sure that there was going to be a Bon Jovi and there was going to be a band. And at that point, I felt that it was do or die. John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora opted to creatively shift toward the mainstream with their next set of new material. The two woodshedded a bunch of new songs along the way, piling up more than two dozen songs during writing sessions in Richie Sambora's basement. His folks both worked, and so the house was empty. I would drive over there in my little Datsun 280Z, which was like my bad ride, you know. I gave John like a key to and he'd come like knocking on the door or whatever at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Here's some pizza, wake up, it's 1 o'clock, you know, we gotta go do something productive today. I live next to a swamp on a dead-end street, so the basement was half underwater sometimes, and it was really, really cold. It was a cement basement with a low ceiling with the two-by-fours and the insulation hanging overhead and the washing machine going. We'd get two guitars and a small cassette tape player and just start running ideas. We'd write till six when his folks came home for dinner and, and we'd call it a day. Once they had some songs following a band tradition, they road-tested, in quotation marks, the material during the demo process by playing it for kids at a local pizza joint. This clip starts with Derek Schulman, who is a label rep, followed by Tico Torres from the band, John Bon Jovi, and then former manager Doc McGee. Even though they weren't letting that marketing guy hear these new demos, or, or the promotion guy, or the head of the company, they were playing these demos to kids in the area. You always ask your friends, but this was actually kids in a pizza parlor. We'd take a break and walk around the corner of the pizza parlor. And we were a little bit known by the locals. And it wasn't that they sat there and voted, yeah, I like it. You know, I, I don't, it doesn't suck. You know, it was more like that kind of comment. It doesn't suck. I think Living on a Prayer might not have made that record had it been for the Pizza Pie Jury. The Pizza Pie Jury, I love that. The band also enlisted a little help from professional songwriter Desmond Child after learning that he'd co-written the 1984 Kiss hit, Heaven's on Fire. This was the first time Child had worked with Bon Jovi and Sambora. John Bon Jovi explained, quote, I liked what Brian Adams had done with Tina Turner, so I suggested we do something similar. I write a song for someone like her, and then we do the song together, but that got changed, and our A&R guy came up with Desmond's name. 
He hasn't tried to change what we are, but to refine it slightly, to suggest extra ways that we could wring a bit more of what we had. As Child later recalled, their partnership was instantly productive. During the first day alone, they wrote future mega-hit You Give Love a Bad Name, which Child secretly reworked from a recent flop he'd written for Bonnie Tyler called If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man. Even after getting the thumbs up from the locals on the songs, John Bon Jovi was initially reluctant to continue work on Living on a Prayer, such as it was, believing that it wasn't good enough. But Richie Sambora convinced him that it was a hit in the making. I remember getting in the cab with Richie, we were going somewhere, and my saying to him, yeah, it's okay. I said, you know what, John, that might have been the best song we've ever written so far. Yeah, maybe it's for a soundtrack. It's not that good. And it's hard to sing the notes at the end. <laughs> I just looked at him, I said, that's a number one song. So the band re-recorded it, releasing the second version on the album, and it, of course, has since become Bon Jovi's signature song. Bon Jovi also brought in fresh blood in the control room, hiring late Canadian Music Hall of Famer Bruce Fairburn, at the time coming off a string of hits for Loverboy and Honeymoon Suite, to produce the record. The band liked the sound of those albums that they had heard from Loverboy and Honeymoon Suite, and John Bon Jovi put in a call to Paul Dean of Loverboy to get more information on Bruce Fairburn as the producer. He agreed to produce the record with engineering and mixing assistance from his protege and future hotshot producer in his own right, Winnipeg born and raised Bob Rock. Convening at Fairburn's Little Mountain Sound Studios in Vancouver, they set about bringing the songs to life. It was during this time that the band also came up with the eventual album title, courtesy of Vancouver area strip clubs, whose water-assisted stage show made a big impression on the New Jersey boys. The girls in those strip bars in Vancouver were doing something that no girls were doing in, in New Jersey. This woman descended down from the ceiling on a pole and proceeded to take all her clothes off, then get in a shower and soap herself up. I mean, they were naked in these showers for three songs a set all day long. We about, you know, lost our tongues. It'd be like, all right. We just sat there and said, we will be here every day. Ah, yes, the shower shows. Richie Sambora with a great quote. He said, that energized us through the whole project. Our testosterone was at a very high level back then. Nightlife notwithstanding, the band remained focused on putting out the best possible product, and the results manifested themselves in a 10-song track listing that encapsulated Bon Jovi's strengths while offering up some of the sharpest hooks and most memorable choruses of their career. There was David Bryan's grinding, John Lord-like organ intro to the anthemic Let It Rock. There was Richie Sambora's charging riffs front and center on the super catchy Raise Your Hands, the closest thing the album had to a rousing metal anthem. On the flip side, the lust-fueled Wild in the Streets, served up infectious power pop, and Wanted Dead or Alive has become a classic for them. Slippery's lead single, You Give Love a Bad Name, surfaced almost a month before the album's August 18th release date. It became a hit, but took until late November to top the charts, a month after the album hit number one on the Billboard Top 200 chart. The band toured incessantly during that time, opening for Judas Priest, 38 Special, and Queensryche. By mid-December, they launched an epic eight-month North American tour with support act Cinderella, whom John had helped land a deal at his label. Living on a Prayer, released on Halloween, hit number one in February of 1987. When that happened, especially after Slippery became the number one album for two months and at one point sold a million copies per week, 
the group became household names. Their songs dominated radio, and their larger-than-life concert videos were plastered all over MTV and much here in Canada. The album's third single was Wanted Dead or Alive, which was initially the band's idea for the album title. They even did a photo session all done up in Western garb for the cover. John talked about the inspiration for the song. I remember I, I couldn't sleep one uh, morning, early, early morning on a bus somewhere around Wisconsin, having the idea for, you know, this story. So when we were writing Slippery, he played that lick, you know, the, the signature lick, then and there on the spot, you know, so we had that song written in two, three hours. Here was this young band of... Uh, you know, a gang or a young band of thieves, if you will, riding into town, stealing the money, the girls and the booze and leaving before the sun came up. That was the lifestyle of every rock band. Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora have also said that they were inspired to write a rock band road song by hearing Bob Seger's Turn the Page, which is also about the touring life. Sambora says the source material was the same as most of the songs they were writing at the time, their own life experience. Most of our grown-up life was lived on the road. Uh, basically all we knew about was kind of like young love, young lust. <laughs> Being a rock and roll star and uh, wanted that her alive was like, almost like a diary of what we felt like. When it was released on August 18th, 1986, Slippery When Wet was met with mixed reviews. Writing about the album a year later, Robert Criscow said, Sure, seven million teenagers can be wrong, but their ascent is not without a certain documentary satisfaction. Oh, critic language. Yes, it proves that youth rebellion is toothless enough to simulate and market, but who the hell thought youth was dangerous in the current vacuum? Would you have preferred the band market patriotism? And are you really immune to living on a prayer? I don't know what any of that means, but whatever. He's a major critic. As late as 1990 in Rolling Stone, Jimmy Guterman thoroughly berated the band and the album. Quote, John Bon Jovi and his band serve up condescending sentiment, reducing every emotional statement to a barefaced cliche, either because they think that's all their audience can comprehend or because that's all they can comprehend. On Slippery When Wet, Bon Jovi sounds like bad fourth-generation metal, a smudgy Xerox of quiet riot. Wow. But what do the critics know, right? What we all want to know is what Rob Halford of Judas Priest thought of it. And he said, quote, I'll be happy to say that I've always been a fan of Bon Jovi just because of the talent. To write those kinds of songs and to be able to have such a broad swath of approach is really quite special. Off the top of my head, I can't really think of any other band that came out of that time with that kind of music that is still so big now in 2016, which is, of course, when he did the interview. Slippery When Wet was an instant commercial success, spending eight weeks at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and was named by Billboard as the top-selling album of 1987. It's Bon Jovi's best-selling album to date, going 12 times platinum, making it one of the 100 top best-selling albums in the U.S. It went number one in Canada and went diamond with sales over one million units here. John Bon Jovi said in 2013, that was our thriller. That was our born in the USA. That was our defining record. The one that they'll write about when we're dead. And it's very hard to live up to that success, no matter who you are. But I have no problem looking back on living on a prayer, wanted dead or alive, and you give love a bad name and saying, yeah, they're still part of the set. They're still part of the patchwork of pop culture. The album itself changed things. It's been called the album that turned heavy metal into a radio-friendly pop format and is also commonly seen as, quote, a breakthrough for hair metal. And the material holds up as though it were released not 35 years ago, but today. And that's why we're making it our latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker.